You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, August 25th, 2009, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Yep, August 25th, 1609, 400 years ago to this very day, that our friend Galileo Galilei... So nice, they named him twice. ...presented his version of his telescope uh, to the Senate of the city-state of Venice. Of course, he wasn't the first guy to develop the telescope, right? No, but he, no, he wasn't. It, no, no, no. In fact, there were other designs. It was he, he modified it based on a Dutch design from a telescope that he, I guess, had worked with a year prior. He probably also wasn't the first person to point it up at the sky either, but he certainly was the first to popularize it or to you know, make scientific discoveries doing that that have survived to this day. We're talking about the seeds of modern, modern science and astronomy. To celebrate that, by the way, is uh, a company is making available the Galileo Scope. Have you guys heard about this? No. Yeah. No. Yeah. Repli- it's part of the International Year of Astronomy. That's they right. were free, right? Yeah. They're, well, they're, or $10. They're cheap. They're really cheap. Yeah, like $10, yeah. $15. It's, it's a, a, a Practically scope free. That's roughly the same size and quality as the one that Galileo used. And uh, Phil Plate reviewed it. He, got his, he bought one cool. for himself. It has real glass lenses. It's, you know, mm-hmm. It really works. It's low power. And you know, there's there's no mount or anything, and there's no equatorial mount. So it's, does it does it use manual. adaptive optics? No, it's, it's really not. basic. Probably really not. basic. Yeah. Does so, it use nanotechnology? No, there's no nanotech it, in this. Thing. Steve, what come, we need to do is get really drunk, go to Phil's house, and just start screwing around with his <laughs> telescope. Does it come with a certificate that say you'll be burned if you look into the heavens with this telescope? Sadly, no. That's extra. Ah. Well, we do have a few news items to get to tonight. The first one, actually, is a little bit also a, a Phil Plate-themed news item having to do with death from the skies. This is a, a news article looking at what would happen if there was a cataclysmic event, such as an asteroid striking the Earth, the kind of thing that would uh, shroud the Earth in darkness for a six-month period. Now, it's pretty obvious that that would be a bad thing. And that would have a dramatic effect on life on Earth. Uh, but some researchers, specifically Charles Cockle at the Open University Center for Earth, Planetary Space, and Astronomical oh, Research cool. in Milton <laughs> Keynes, UK, wanted to find out what would happen to phototrophic species if they were deprived of light for six months. So these are you know, microscopic creatures, and he had in there phototrophs, which use light to make energy, and mixotrophs. Mixotrophs are mixers. They can makes energy from light, but they can also eat dead things and get some energy that way. Uh, What he found was a little surprising. It turns out that, yes, a lot of the phototrophs died once they were deprived of light, but some of them actually survived in a dormant state for the full six months. Cool. The mixotrophs did just fine. They actually thrived quite nicely in the environment, uh, being already adapted to getting some nutrition without light. And I guess the, all the dying phototrophs provided a lot of raw material for them. They also found out that after the six months when they, rest- when they restored the light, that the phototrophs, the ones that survived, bounced back quite nicely. Uh, and in fact, they were helped in their recovery by the nutrient-rich environment created by the mixotrophs, the nutrient turning over 
that was provided by the mixotrophs continuing to eat stuff. So what this shows is that even after a, a cataclysmic event, the kind of thing that would you know basically block out the sun for six months, that uh, photosynthetic microscopic organisms would not necessarily become extinct, that they could actually survive and then repopulate the oceans. I guess that's nice to know, even though we will all be dead and gone, I assume. I don't know. We could probably survive. It depends for six on the months. impact. It totally yeah, depends yeah, on the impact. I guess so. yeah. Plus, it's nice to know that now, Steve. I assume you now you're talking about a lot of these creatures are plankton, right? The, yeah. the base of the food chain, like phytoplankton. It's, it's, yeah. it's nice to know that uh, the base of the food chain will, you know, be largely or mostly intact, or even a little intact after after this event. Because you know, once you lose that, then kind of everything else collapses, escalates. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if that showed that. Um, even after six months, the phototrust wouldn't bounce back, that they would be all dead and that would be it, or even after a shorter period of time, you know, that, yeah, that would be, have, have more dire implications for right. even a medium kind of a, a strike. Right. Or this could be a, a massive volcanic eruption could also result in the same thing. Of course, a nuclear winter is what was one of the scenarios that could shroud the Earth for a period of time. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting finding. There was another news article that also discussed a cataclysmic, apocalyptic event per se. You guys all heard about this, the uh, a scholarly study mathematically evaluating what would happen during a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, I wrote what? it. <laughs> 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 wrote it, lived it. Evan, if you, if you, you reenacted that, it. <laughs> I, would, I would worship you in ways that you have no idea. But anyway, this, this was actually... Uh, one of those things that happens that makes me go, there are really cool people out there that I don't know about. <laughs> it's called um, When Zombies Attack! Exclamation point. Mathematical Modeling of an Outbreak of Zombie Infection. And this was actually published in a book of infectious disease. Um, it was written by four Canadian mathematicians. I'm not sure if they were students or if it was a mixture of students and teachers. There's at least one assistant professor in there, I think. But the, the basic idea is that this was a uh, instructive treatment to develop a mathematical model for an unusual outbreak, they just picked you know the zombie or a zombie plague as as the example. Real quick to go through the basics of the study, they they came up with the, the idea that there would be three different ways that they would have to label people and zombies. One is susceptible, which means you're a human that's could be uh, potentially infected with the with the virus. You're a zombie, or you're removed, which I think means you're dead. Yeah, it means you were destroyed. Your zombie was destroyed, yeah. There was, I, have, I pulled out one quote at the end that I think kind of sums up this very well. It said, This demonstrates the flexibility of mathematical modeling and shows how modeling can respond to a wide variety of challenges in quote-unquote biology. In summary, a zombie outbreak is likely to lead to the collapse of civilization unless it is dealt with quickly. While aggressive quarantine may contain the epidemic or a cure may lead to coexistence of humans and zombies, the most effective way to contain the rise of the undead is to hit hard and hit often. <laughs> Just like having sex life. As seen in the movies, That's it is great. imperative that the zombies are dealt with quickly or else we are all in, great, in a great deal of trouble. That's just like World War Z. That's the same basic premise of that of that book. But oh, there's yeah. a legitimate. The study wasn't. It isn't just a joke. And you know, I was talking to Bob about this earlier, and I was saying, you know, the, these are definitely people that are fans of of zombies, or at least some of the people involved were fans of of the zombie culture and all that. And also, um, 
They just thought this would be a fun thing to take and do a legitimate mathematical study on it. And I don't think it was a real waste of time. I think that they can get some legitimate concepts out of this. You know, they were coming no, it's up a hypothetical with, infection, right? Just the fact yeah, exactly. that zombies is, is irrelevant. Um, you could use the same mathematics to to map out allegiances to political parties, for example, or they said diseases with a with a dormant infection. You know, lots of different kinds of things where there's something spreading, right? What they what one interesting thing they said was that if an infection breaks out in a city of five hundred thousand people, the zombies will outnumber the susceptibles in about three days. Whoa. Yeah, so uh, wow. by the, the parameters that they use, I mean, the zombies take over the world pretty quickly. And then in an interview with this guy, I heard him say that, that the only – the scenario that ends the, the, uh, the spread of the zombie infection is, was, ex- again, similar to World War Z, where you basically need a massive army to roll through the countryside, obliterating every zombie in its wake. Which means that you have to be really prepared beforehand. To, you had to really anticipate it. Which is kind of scary because how prepared are we really for a, a lot of crazy stuff? I'm completely prepared. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what you're how talking about. I have or, maps. Yeah. I have a safe room. I have got, records. I've I got can garlic. Uh, I've got silver bullets. I've got wolfsbane. I'm all Evan, oh, my God, Evan. You don't Jay, know ever since you got your I'm shotgun, good. Jay, you think you're just all set. <laughs> I'm all set. I'm ready. I've got, got cross, I've got, I've got tons of water. ammo. I am ready to roll. Can you can you see these guys, these mathematicians, when they're when they were creating this? You just see them sitting there giggling, saying to themselves, "Do you know what kind of free press we're going to get when we announce?" Oh this? yeah, it was brilliant. It was brilliant. It's, it, this is a, just a regular old mathematical epidemiological study, and they got all this press because they decided oh, to use zombies as their model. Brilliant! It's, it's brilliant. Inspired. Yeah, all research from now on should be in the context of zombies, yeah. and everyone will, you know, will become a scientifically literate society before you know it. But they're but, they're not the first ones to do this, though. I mean, there have been similar papers looking at the feasibility, for example, of vampires and spreading vampirism, and like making using that as a model, assuming that. You know, if you create a vampire, then that vampire has to also feed, and then eventually there won't be enough human cattle to feed all the vampires. That and also, there's been um, there have been a few studies on Haitian zombies, like actual cases of people who claim oh to have seen zombies. Well, it's it's truer than you you might imagine. I first saw it on um, Isaac. Asimov's mysterious universe, I think it was. Yeah, Wait, but they're they're boring because they're not dead. <laughs> it's, it's, no, it's actually really fascinating. Sure, um, they might have buried them alive and got out, but they're not dead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, they they suspected that they used um, I don't know how to pronounce them tetrodotoxin. Tetrodotoxin. Keep trying. Thank you. I call it TT. TTDs. But yeah, uh, it, I don't know. It's 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 really interesting to look into the real life aspects of that our modern day myths kind of can come from, or at least have some sort of relation to. It's not that bad of an idea to do something like this for for several reasons. One of them is though, you know, first of all, it does get press, which is good. It's not you know, it's not bad to have some of your research done in such a fashion where it gets some publicity, and you know, it might it might interest. Some people that normally wouldn't read something like this. I mean, I have to admit, like I look deeper into this study just because I'm a fan of of the topic, and I was reading stuff that I normally wouldn't even make an attempt to read just because, you know, math in particular. Like I'm just not a math-minded person, but you know, I was able to follow it to a certain degree. Got got a little bit past, you know, 
it got very much past where I'm at. But the bottom line is, I did read it and I was interested. So that's yeah, a good way to popularize science. Brains. Well there you go. Brains. Yeah. Now my, <laughs> just to make a few quick statements here, right? Since we're on one of my favorite topics, quadratic formula. Zombies should not be able to talk. They will eat anything, any warm flesh. This brains thing is ridiculous. Slow moving, huge amount of numbers. Very dumb, very slow. So you're slow. a traditionalist when it comes to zombies. Yes. He's, he's a slow walker. He's a shuffler. And then yeah. I'm, in, I'm in that camp as well, although I don't mind the runners. Um, yeah, I mean, shufflers are so much easier to get away from, though. Yeah, but, but the fact is that there's so many of them, and they're, just, they're implacable. They're just going to get yeah. you. It's, it's like a metaphor yeah. for death, right? That's pretty much what they are. Wait, I thought they were a metaphor for rampant consumerism. Oh, that's <laughs> Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, there's, there's, lots, of, there's lots of metaphors in, in that. Or that's racism one of my favorites. or xenophobia. Right. There's a lot. You could read a lot into that stuff. Oh, it's those great. are all good. Or the perils of rigor mortis. Hmm. Let's move on to some more serious topics. The World Health Organization. Who? Right. Oh. Recently um, made several negative statements regarding the use of homeopathy. <gasps> very, very positive. So, but th- they, they the same in Britain, and are they getting sued for it? Right. <laughs> this was provoked actually <laughs> by an open letter from. The Voice of Young Science, which is a group of, of young medics from the UK who are skeptics and, you know, in favor of, of science-based medicine. And, you know, the WHO, the, WHO, the WHO, has made – because they're really a very political organization, they've been very wishy-washy when it comes to unscientific medical modalities. Usually they're cowed because of the, the notion that they want to respect – regional differences or like the, the 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 cultural medicine of indigenous people whatever so uh, in in that guys they've often taken very wishy-washy stances towards unscientific modalities so when asked specifically about the use of homeopathy for HIV tuberculosis malaria and influenza and also infant diarrhea so those are you know serious uh, conditions that especially in un- underdeveloped and uh, poor parts of the world, especially in Africa, the, you know the, those diseases are taking a, a really significant toll, and uh, homeopathy is being offered to to treat these very serious illnesses. So they, the WHO was asked to take a stance on this, and you know to their credit, they put out a press release clarifying their position, saying that homeopathy is bunk; that it doesn't work. Who asked them to do this? Sense about science. Is is the is a UK group, and I think that part of that group is the voice of young science. Yeah, they're the ones who are doing a great job keeping everybody up to date on Simon Singh's case yeah. and circulating the petitions and things like that. They're a yeah. really fantastic group. Yeah, they're doing they're doing a great job. Keep libel laws out of out of science. Yeah. So here's one. There's a couple of quotes. One from Doctor Doctor Mario Ravaglione, director of Stop TB Department of the WHO. Our evidence-based WHO TB treatment management guidelines, as well as the international standards of tuberculosis care, do not recommend use of homeopathy. Other quotes: WHO's evidence-based guidelines on treatment of tuberculosis have no place for homeopathic medicines. 
Let me end by congratulating the young clinicians and researchers of Sense About Science for their efforts to ensure evidence-based approaches to treating and caring for people living with HIV. They, they took a very good tact. They said, listen, these are serious illnesses. These are vulnerable populations, poor populations. They're being victimized by pseudoscientific quackery, basically. And the WHO needs to take a stance on this, so they forced them basically to clarify their position, and they and very nicely came out solidly against the use of homeopathy for these mm. serious illnesses. Awesome. Our time. Yeah, very good. Yeah, right. And you know, this always bring this always highlights the fact that you know things like homeopathy. And again, the very quickie is that you know homeopathy is a two hundred year old system which uses such extreme dilutions of of remedies that there's no active ingredients left, and is based upon a pseudo scientific notion of the so called law of similars, which is really a form of sympathetic magic. It's not a scientific notion. So it is a completely pre-scientific or pseudoscientific, you know, 200-year-old um, system of medicine. Yeah, just take a remedy that's not really a remedy and dilute it into nothingness, and there it is. Yes. But every time we talk about homeopathy, we make that point. There's one thing that keeps uh, hitting me. Like, the other thing is they, they treat like with like. Like, in other words, if you're trying to give somebody a sleep aid, the active ingredient would actually be caffeine. And then they make, they, they make a couple of false analogies to try to justify that. They, the most common one is the analogy to, to vaccines. But vaccines yeah. actually give a measurable amount of a substance that is, de, that is designed to provoke an immune response. So there's, 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 no, there's no analogy there to the law of similars or the law of infinitesimals. Yeah, and it's, it's worth noting that um, someone wrote in to us last week and they were under the impression that homeopathy was somehow related to various forms of treating diseases in, in a similar kind of way, as, like, like with, with vaccines. But those two things were developed completely independently and actually don't have anything to do with each other at all. It's not that uh, homeopathy grew into the idea of vaccines. That's just not the way it happens. Homeopathy's always been complete and utter pseudoscience. Right. And mm-hmm. hostile to scientific medicine. Yeah, Indeed. In no way is a part of the, the tradition of, of science-based medicine. Were any of you guys ever treated with a homeopathic remedy? N- no. I was. Not to my knowledge. Long, long ago, I, uh, I had a college professor recommend an, an immunologist... And uh, I went, and I remember the guy had like this. Um, it looked like a soldering iron, you know, like a soldering. Uh, it wasn't like a gun. It was like the you know, like the one that you hand hold, like a pen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It had like a metal end mm-hmm. on it, and he had this contraption. Just check this out. He took these yeah. little vials of water. Wonder what those were. And he had this yeah. whole huge tray of them, and he took them out, and he popped them into like this machine that had like a, a receptacle, and all it did was it touched like the metal top of the uh, the little vial of water. And then I guess they run an electrical charge through that, and then they run this electrical charge through the end of this pen thing that he had, and he touched like a, a knuckle on my, one of my hands, and he was testing like the capacitance or something, like the mm-hmm. resistance. And then anything, I guess, that, that had some reading, whatever the reading was he was looking for, he, I was deemed allergic to that substance. And then he gave me homeopathic remedies to, to do that. Now, wow. like he asked me, what do you do? Like he's like, Tell me about my environment and what do you eat a lot of? So I was like, you know, I like to eat oranges. That's my favorite fruit. I eat a lot of those. I have a dog. I had a couple of other things I mentioned. Like I eat a lot of like tomato and like sauce and different stuff, whatever. Basically, everything I liked or I said that I used a lot, I was allergic to. Yeah. 
<laughs> that conductance that trick is totally yeah, it's total quackery because you can make quack. it say anything you want just by the pressure that you use when you apply to the skin the conductance stuff. That's pure nonsense. Anybody comes at you with one of those things, man, just r- run for your life. Let's go on to another news item: the fading away of mediums in Japan. There's a really cool story that appeared in the New York Times a couple of days ago, and it was all about this ancient tra- ancient Japanese tradition of. Uh, of mediums who are usually blind women and they're only located in a small portion of northern Japan. And it's, it's really interesting because they're down to the last few. They're, they're dying out because it's this, um, this ancient shamanistic kind of belief system that is being pushed out by much more modern takes on religion. The, the lives that these women lead, though, are really fascinating. Most of them, if not all of them at this point, are blind or severely impaired, um, visually impaired. So they memorize verses, um, scriptures to chant, uh, all without ever actually having seen them. So they have to commit them all to memory by just listening to them. They go through this intense process where they have to dump cold water on themselves in the dead of winter and trainees were denied any kind of sleep and severely restricted in what kind of foods they could eat. And basically at once they passed um, through all these stages, they would be married off to a God basically. And after that people would, they, they would see people who came to the mountains to get their, uh, to, to speak to dead loved ones. So it's funny because it's actually after, even after all that very mystical and very foreign to us sort of procedures, they behave exactly like, you know, we're used to hearing mm-hmm. mediums behave. I, I read some, um, excerpts from a book that was written on them back in 1986 called uh, The Katapobo, A Study of Shamanistic Practices in Japan, in which a woman actually went and spent some time with with these women uh, who are known as Itako. The way she describes it is that uh, someone would, uh, I'll just, I'll just quote from her actually. Throughout the day and into the evening, customers would go from one blind medium to another, seeking spiritual advice or consolation. Each would ask questions about the deceased person. Was the deceased a family relation? What was the cause, the date, and the nature of the death? Were there surviving children? Having thus ascertained into which type the dead person fell, the taco launched into a rapid sing-song chant lasting five or ten minutes. It was not difficult to see that that not a single one of the Itako was in any state resembling trance. They exhibited none of the usual symptoms of stertorous breathing and convulsively shaking hands. The chants they recited, moreover, were easily seen to fall into different fixed forms. So basically, they would just give these uh, their customers standard horoscope-style readings, um, collect their you know $30 or whatever, and move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting to me to see something that's considered very ancient and a dying art actually be very, very similar to what goes on today all over the world. Um, and one of the reasons why it seems like it's dying might be because this was one of the few opportunities for a young blind girl to have a job in medieval 
Asia was was to go into the supernatural healing arts. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, because it's not really the sort of life that a girl would really want to choose. I think dumping cold water on herself in the middle of winter all the time. Uh, so yeah, I think that 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 now that we have actual opportunities for the disabled and uh, and women in general, uh, this is quickly dying away. Now they're they're literally down to a handful of women left who still go through all of these very ancient rites. Now, you know, when I was reading about this, you know, I was thinking about the, this question that comes up a lot is how much of superstitions and, and belief in things like mediums is just part of human nature and will always be with us and how much of it is cultural. Now, the New York Times article makes it sound like, uh, for example, they write, they have survived government efforts to stamp them out as well as continuing disdain of many Japanese who look down on them as charlatans who trade in superstition which I think is the proper view for any kind of you know medium is to is to look at them as someone who's trying to peddle superstition. So that that made me think is this is is Japan culturally less superstitious than say in, than other parts of the world? Well, I don't I don't think so because I you know I I don't think you could ever um make a blanket statement like that just based upon one data point like this because as you know there are tons of different ways to be right. superstitious. But in this case, um, I'm, I'm actually, you know, I understand obviously that they are in a way charlatans and, you know, they, they're not actually telling people's future or, um, contacting their dead loved ones. But in this case, I, I do think it's interesting because you're talking about a population of people who go into a particular trade because they have no other options. Mm-hmm. Um, you're talking about like they, they, with the Itako, um, there, there are various other kinds of, um, prophet style, um, shamanistic, um, mediums in Japan. Um, but the, the Itako particularly are apparently recruited quite young, or at least they used to be, um, meaning like 10 years old, 11, 12. So, uh, and, you know, they're, they're scooping up girls who are blind and who are seen as, you know, different and other and they literally had no other choice and you can see it in a lot of other cultures as well um uh, many in many cultures any child uh any person with some sort of disfigurement that they were they were born with um could be seen as uh being like that's a blessing from mm-hmm. god and so they're raised to be a part of that you know, mystical kind of supernatural field. So, yeah, I mean, while I understand that, yeah, they, they shouldn't be taking people's money to basically give them these, you know, horoscopes. I do have some sympathy for them in the fact that this is literally probably the only uh, opportunity they would ever have to do something for themselves and to actually make a life for themselves. Yeah, I, I see that point, but I wonder what, what this made me consider is certainly some cultures are more superstitious than others, right? I mean, I don't think we would say that all cultures are equally superstitious. So, but how what, how much do we have to play with here? Like, how much effect can we have? How, what is the necessary rate of superstition just because of human nature? Right. And you know, how little superstition could we have in in a human culture, basically? And our efforts are trying to make our own culture less superstitious. 
Yeah, I, I definitely do see what you're saying. It's tough to tell, isn't it? Because there's so many data points. And, you know, oftentimes you've got one superstition dying out only to be replaced by right. another one, you know, by like um, a lot of shamanistic cultures die out because they're seen as heretical to more organized religion. So now are they better off or worse off? It's, you know, right. it's kind of tough to say. It depends on the religion. But right. Steve, what yeah. about subcultures? Like, say the subculture, could you define, say, scientists as a sub subculture and, and look at it that way and see how prevalent superstition is for a, a field of, you know, something as broad as, say, scientists? There have been a lot of studies you know, looking at you know education and and being a scientist on beliefs in certain things, and it, it, there certainly is an effect. But it's not as simple as you might think. Scientists, for example, may have less belief in traditional organized religions or in some superstitions, but but uh, there may may have more beliefs in certain things like UFOs or think more science right. fiction-y kind of belief systems, you know? What about and, the skeptical subculture then? Well, yeah, I, I think well, that's yeah. sort of self-selected for not being superstitious. <laughs> so, yeah. What about the superstitious subculture? Damn. Right, right. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. This is a question we still are investigating and, and to a degree struggling with is what is the potential? Is there, are we always going to have to deal with superstition in one form or another? Is it, if we stamp out one thing is just going to the human need or tendency for superstitious belief or religious belief just crop up in some other form yeah you know like a whack-a-mole kind of thing or well i mean history would suggest I, that that would be well, the of case. course yeah most of human history is rife with it i mean only recently have we started to sort of break away yeah. from these things i think we'll see it until we upload our minds into computers <laughs> i think so Interesting. Mm. <laughs> One more uh, news item. This one's really interesting. A Canadian scientist is trying to turn a chicken into a dinosaur. I fully support this. Wait, Wait what came first? It, the will it, the nothing will can it still taste like wrong. chicken, though? Or what, what's going to happen? Uh, I'd love to find out. I mean, can you imagine? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, well, you know, Kentucky Fried Dinosaur. That would be awesome. But I don't know that we're necessarily like really going to ever find that out. <laughs> no, I think the dinosaur would find out if we taste like chicken. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Professor's name is Dr. Hans Larsen, and uh, he is with uh, he just McGill. sounds like a villain, too. This is totally going to end badly. <laughs> and his assistant, Mon Franz. <laughs> Hans and he's, Franz. A paleon he <laughs> he's a paleontologist. He is uh, with, M with McGill University in Montreal. In fact, he's the uh, he holds the chair in vertebrate paleontology there, and uh, he's done uh, quite a bit of work. You know, obviously as a paleontologist, a lot of field work and so forth. That seems to be where his most of his uh, specialty lies and most of the research that he's done. But recently, he's been he's been interested in the concept of trying to, I guess, what is considered sort of reverse engineer, come up with a dinosaur, but based on a chicken embryo, and apparently the way that he proposes to do that you could theoretically do this is by when you get the chicken embryo obviously in the embryonic state you flip certain genetic levers during that development and you can reproduce certain parts of a dinosaur anatomy by doing that mm -hmm. you know I, I there are there are certain uh, experiments that have gone on in which you have something say a fruit fly right and you can get 
you can take uh, what starts up, I guess, the embryo of a fruit fly, and you can get to it early enough in which, say, it won't grow its antennas normally where its antennas was. You can flip a switch and make extra legs grow out, right. fruit fly legs grow where the antenna would have been if you know, you know, if you know what, I guess, proteins to, uh, to fool around with there. But, but we're talking about fruit fly parts, right, on a fruit fly, you know, putting their legs where their antennas are. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't quite understand how you get dinosaur parts. There is precedent, though. How about embryo? chicken teeth? They've done experiments where they've yeah. actually grown teeth in, in chickens. Uh, so, they, so there is a precedence for this. They're, the genes are still there. They're just not expressed. And a lot, a lot of evolution is not just you know change these genes and see what happens now. It's also when certain genes are expressed. It's the timing also that could, that can also make huge changes. I, I, I also find it difficult to imagine that they could create uh, a whole dinosaur, but pieces of dinosaurs I could I could see easily. Yeah, Steve, what, 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 what he's talking about is creating a chickenosaur, right? You're not going to have a T. Rex or even a Velociraptor at the end of it because we can't re- reverse the. Did you say chickenosaur? Yeah, I, really, that's the uh, best you could do. That, that's not me. That's their word. That's his word for it. That's the best he can do. Chickenosaurus Rex. Come or di- on, or, or dino chicken. Dino chicken, much better. Yeah. <laughs> How about right. lick a chicken? Cluckasaurus. <laughs> so, th- but this is what he's this is what he's working on. It's actually really it's actually really neat. It's not. So, I mean, if you think about creating like a dinosaur species that was alive, you know, eighty million years ago or so, yeah, that that's we probably won't get to that point. It's certainly not anytime soon. But what he's talking about is really an an excellent exercise in evolutionary developmental biology, or evo-devo, as they call it, right? And this is in the area of, of uh, the relevant area of study here. And what this looks at is how the development from an embryo into the adult form has changed over evolutionary history and how that process evolves, how you get from a dinosaur to a chicken by tweaking the chicken. developmental process. And what Larson is doing is you know, f- trying to figure out like how a dinosaur tail became a chicken tail. And what, what happens, is, what, what at some point what had to happen was that the genes that get expressed that, that cause the tail to grow into a, into a long dinosaur tail are being rep- suppressed, right? Um, so that you get the short chicken tail. Now, we, we don't understand yet all of the, the chemical triggers that control how the development unfolds. But what he's saying is once we understand that, and that's what he's researching right now, he's basically going back and doing the basic research, if we can understand how to control that process, we can cause, as the chicken embryo develops, we can tweak the the chemical signals and cause it to, to unfold down a different developmental pathway, a dinosaur developmental pathway, rather than a chicken developmental pathway. So what I found really interesting is that he's not doing genetic engineering, right? He's not altering the genes at right. all. And he's not, he's, in- taking- yeah, he's not introducing any foreign tissue and he's not introducing any foreign genes. 
He's just working with what's already existing. Yeah, he's working with the genes that are already there and just changing how they develop by altering the environment, by altering you know, the, the concentrations of different chemicals that are acting as the signals that are, that are controlling the development of these things. So he's saying if we can get the chicken to grow teeth and to grow a long tail and to grow scales instead of feathers, and you, know, you put enough of these things together and you have something that looks more like a dinosaur than you do a chicken. Doesn't that take millions of quote unquote you know flipping levers no, to, in order no, to, it, to I, achieve that? It won't take no, millions. millions could be a few. The whole that's the whole point. Few. The whole point is that one one regulatory gene can control a whole suite of genes. Mm-hmm. If you catch it, if you get it early, yeah. And then, so if you could, if you, so you, as you say, you can grow a leg instead of an antenna. You didn't have to change all of the antenna genes into leg genes. All you had to do was control the one gene that says grow a leg here instead of grow an antenna here, right? And then it just it goes down the leg developmental pathway instead of going down the antenna developmental pathway. So he's trying to make a chicken tail go down a dinosaur tail pathway instead of a right. chicken tail pathway by just. And it doesn't matter that there's 65 million plus years of, of distance, basically, between these two these two creatures. Well, again, that's why you. I don't think you're going to get a Velociraptor at the end of this process, right? There's just too many genetic changes have occurred. We don't have, we know what all the the specific genes would be, but you can get lots of dinosaur features. They are still there in, in right. the genes as pathways that are not not realized in the developmental process of a chicken, but you can make those pathways are still there. The genes are still there. Yeah, the the point is the information to completely recreate any specific dinosaur is overwhelmingly likely that that information is gone. There's no getting it back. It's it's game over. It's impossible in in principle. There is some information that is left over that just either aren't expressed or aren't expressed in the right order, and you can, like Steve said, recreate certain things like the scales or the or or the tails or some other subtle little things that you can then grow a chicken that that's got scales. Imagine that. Talk about proof of evolution. What an elegant proof of evolution this is. Yeah, Yeah. and I'm sure they can come out. They can come back and say, well, you know. All animals have this inherent information inside of them, and they could come up with crap. Yeah, I'm the, sure they will. I'm sure. I but, mean, but the proof God, is already there. Chicken teeth. Why would right. chickens have genes for teeth if they, right. if not for evolution? <laughs> yep. If they can explain that away, they'll explain anything away. That would make the, that. Can you imagine that would make the cover of like every science magazine on the planet? I want a chickadactyl. I want a chickafiladactyl. Pete is going to be all over this. I want a brontosaurus burger. Oh, yeah. All right. Okay. <laughs> that's right. right. That's what we need. We need to we need to create all <laughs> we need to re-engineer all these things so we can so eat, we them. eat them. <laughs> I I want to I, I want to go to Burger King and have oh. those ribs that are so big it topples my car. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean well, I mean, you know, plausibility. I, we're not going to see any dinosaurs. I I think all of this. that we will see chickens with dinosaur features. I yeah. just want the five-breasted chicken. I think that would be, you know, we could we could solve some hunger problems, I think, this way. All well, right. let's go on with our interview.
Well, we are sitting here at TAM7 with Jamie Ian Swiss. Jamie, welcome to the Skeptic Sky. A pleasure to finally be here. I'm finally. a long-time listener. Oh, oh wow. great. Good <laughs> to hear that. And you are a member of the New York City Skeptics. You're I am a co-founder and, uh, I guess, vice president of the New York City Skeptics, which uh, I helped create uh, about 20 years after I was a co-founder of the National Capital Area Skeptics. Mm-hmm. So cool. I've been at this founding regional skeptic group thing <laughs> right, for a sir. while. So you're moving around the country just forming skeptics. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. My work is done here. Time to move on. <laughs> kind of makes you the Ben Franklin of skepticism as far as I'm <laughs> well, concerned. I'll take that. I was okay. going to say okay. the Johnny skepticism. Like Johnny, Johnny Appleseed. Oh, Johnny Appleseed. Right. You could go that route, too. <laughs> Franklin, right? <laughs> I'll go with the Ben Franklin yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. You're going to be uh, involved with the, the Nexus Conference. The Nexus Conference, which yeah. is a very exciting uh, cooperative event with uh, yourself and uh, New England uh, skeptics and mm-hmm. the New York City skeptics and the idea that we've been kicking around for a while of a regional uh, conference. So mm-hmm. we're going to start with a one-day event on September 12th with a quite a actually robust cast of characters, I'm pleased to say, and uh, hope, we, hope we start something good that, that goes on and gets bigger. And you're going to be emceeing, is that correct? I am indeed going to be emceeing. Yes, exactly. I will, uh, for better or for worse, I will be the host, <laughs> and perhaps the comic relief. That's usually, you know, I always say that the tradition of the skeptical movement goes, you know, centuries and centuries old of rational inquiry and critical thinking, and you know, is always filled with educators and scientists and uh, researchers and academics, and then some guy who does card tricks you know this right, right. in the room there's always that there's always that guy and that goes back very far you know 400 years in the written literature mm-hmm. and of course you are a magician i am and oh magicians have a very respected place in the skeptical community right? i i suppose within the community that's fair to say because yeah. we, because we have a long standing presence in it and the, and i think people appreciate the natural there's an affinity between yeah, the, the natural connection mm-hmm. between magic and skeptics. Well, I think the connection is not always so obvious, and it's mm-hmm. something I often have to speak to in my public uh, speaking engagements about the subject. You know, the question that arises is why is someone who deceives people for a living concerned about people being deceived? On the face of it, that's uh, a bit of a conundrum. Mm-hmm. But the question really speaks, the answer goes to actually a moral issue when it comes right down to it because when i say the word magician i say i'm going to fool you you know the the world famous conjurer at the turn of the 20th century carl germain who said the conjurer is the most that is the most honest of all professionals he first promises to fool you and then he does so mm-hmm. uh, and so uh, i'm i'm stating that moral contract with with the audience i'm going to lie to you in a in a in a moral framework and so magicians get uh, not all of us but some of us get uh, uptight and unhappy when we see the tools of our legitimate honest lying mm-hmm. uh, misused by those who would use it to deceive people about how the world works. And that tradition goes back very long. As I mentioned, uh, 400 years ago, a book was written in England called The Discovery of Witchcraft, 1584, by Reginald Scott, uh, which had a little section on magic. Now, it was not a book about magic. It was really a book of critical thinking. It's a, a classic Elizabethan text. And what he was doing was he was debunking, was a barrister, and he was debunking the witch burnings of, of essentially of Jamesian England, slightly pre-James. And when James took the throne he actually ordered all copies burned usually the sign of a good book yeah. right. but he was saying that you know in fact given the context of his time scott wasn't even saying quite that witches don't exist they might exist but 
what about the evidence that's being used? I don't think the evidence that we're being used is sufficient. Right. And part yeah. of his part of his uh, claim was was his case was here's a little chapter on magic tricks. If you see how these magic tricks work, you'll see that these are certainly not evidence of witchcraft. And mm-hmm. so this begins uh, this long-standing intersection of critical thinking. And he was a, an abundantly rational mind. If you yeah. read Discovery, it's it, once you get past the old English, it's a really contemporary mind. It's I would have loved to have had a had a brew, you know, in London with 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 Scott. It's really a refreshing mind to read. Of course, you know, 250 years later, there's Harry Houdini at the birth of spiritualism and the birth of uh, parapsychology as an alleged science, mm-hmm. literally the birth of it. Mm-hmm. John Rennie, the editor of uh, Scientific American, often likes to talk about the history of, Cy- of Siam in, in the early creation of the Committees for Psychical Research and Houdini's role in that, yes. right. in that early research, debunking uh, phony spiritualists, debunking seances and so on. And of course, he was debunking physical phenomena as evidence for the paranormal, a tradition that James Randi continued in the mm-hmm. 1970s, notably with Yuri Geller and the like, debunking physical phenomena as evidence for the paranormal. Right. So it's a, there's a long history of physicians being involved with that. Exactly. Which, I think if you know that history, then it makes sense. Right? That's but right. You, if you know the history, yeah. it makes sense. But it's not always obvious at first blush why the, why that in, how that intersection occurs. Right. And, and, and part of that, it has to do with deception. You know, all the scientific and academic training in the world does not usually include training in deception. Why, why mm-hmm. would it? Uh, people like Randy and myself have a deep but narrow expertise that says, I know how to fool people and I know how to recognize when people are being fooled. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, probably when you were in med school, you didn't take a class on deception because there's no such thing as a sneaky amoeba and the right. microbes don't get together and call <laughs> yeah. a meeting on the slide and say, hey, let's yeah. fool the big guy. <laughs> yeah. right. Right. But, but but you do get it in psychology, you know. Yes, yes. We learn about all the mechanisms of self-deception. Of self-deception in yeah. particular, yes, right. cognitive dissonance. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's magic is really just an applied understanding of of that how people deceive themselves and how they perceive things. Certainly, as a neuroscientist, the, the, the crossover with magic is huge. Right. Yeah. And per- and perception, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, you've often said that human beings are uh, are terrible observers, right, and, right. and and understanding what that really means is is part of the skill set that magicians use every day. Yeah, absolutely. But but sometimes, uh, science scientists, academics, whatever, will think that somehow that education is actually some sort of prophylactic against being deceived. But I don't get paid to do magic shows just for the stupid. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I get right. paid to fool smart people every right. day. Yeah. Right. Do you agree with Randy, who, who said that it's actually easier to, de- to deceive smart people because you, you know how they're going to think about things? I, 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 as counterintuitive as that is, I think any magician would, would endorse that statement. Be, and that's because what magicians are doing, they're not to – to be fooled is not the same as being a fool. Mm-hmm. And what any magician is doing, what any professional deceiver, whether it's a con man or a card cheat, a, fr- a fraudulent psychic or a magician – is doing is using your intelligence against you because we are pattern-seeking animals and we make we jump to conclusions based on experience and mm-hmm. most of the time those are good survival skills but sometimes in the wrong hands like these uh, <laughs> those things can be used against you right mm-hmm. you know right right but you do it for entertainment absolutely and and it pisses you off when people use their precisely their money. precisely right precisely but, and right. that's the, that is what probably initially made Randy get involved. You said some magicians aren't sympathetic to skepticism. I'm curious. Could you give me some examples of what what they might say about us? Oh, about us? About skepticism in general? Uh, We're a bunch of geeky white guys talking to each other (laughs) and stamping our feet. Um, 
True but irrelevant. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I, I, just, I just wanted to clarify what you meant. Uh, <laughs> um, well, you know, there there is a uh, there is a school of thinking in magic that likes to link uh, magic with its occult hist- historical underpinnings. Um, a part of that I maintain comes from the confusion of the word magic, which has multiple mm-hmm. meanings in contemporary English. And whether it means conjuring, which is a nice Britishism that unfortunately we don't use very commonly here in the right. U.S., mm-hmm. um, or whether it means the occult. And uh, so the fact that something akin to magic might have been used by shamans and the underpinnings of religion and that that might have actually served good purpose in its time is something that some magicians want to invoke in their work, you know. Mm-hmm. You know skeptics sometimes operate, often operate under the misapprehension that, well, if we just present the evidence... But that's not, that's not true. No. Mm-hmm. That's, that's just not the case. Yeah. And that's because what you're, you're not really battling the facts. You're battling a, a worldview. Mm-hmm. You're battling how people determine what is true for themselves. Yeah. We who use the scientific method as a way to find truth in the realm of testable claims, mm-hmm. right? I think I just described our collective worldview mm-hmm. sure. here, right? Yeah. right? But what does somebody else mean by evidence? Well, there's people in the world mean something very different than what you and I mean. You know, cult of personality is people get their evidence. They'll believe evidence presented right. to them. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> or I do a PBS special to sell my books. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, before we switch off the, uh, the topic of magicians, is there anything in the m- magician community? Or the co- what would be the right way to put that, That's by the way? fair enough. Okay. Do you ever, like, talk to other magicians and say, hey, you know, you, you shouldn't present yourself with that you have you have a, you have a little cult I'm thinking of someone in particular I don't want to name them but Chris Angel but you know he he definitely goes for the, the cult following thing he in my opinion he rides that line of he wants I went to his website and he want he calls his like you know his his uh, fans like the uh, the faithful or whatever you know I just felt like he he wallows in that mystique in a way that made me uncomfortable. I don't know if you agree with that. I, 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 I would disagree with that. I, I think, and we touched on this at a panel earlier today, and the question is, you know, what claims is he making? I don't think, I've never seen Chris make any paranormal claim in his work. In fact, I've seen him decry, the disclaim them. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as, in, in, that, in that framework, you're talking the cult of personality, if you want to use that phrase, no differently than, than Madonna does or, or, right. or, or any pop, pop culture star. In the end, you know, any any performer is selling a, a personality. I think that's what what Chris is doing there. So I I, I have no problem with that. I, I have I have a problem with someone selling a worldview. I, mm-hmm. I don't, Chris is not trying to tell anybody what kind of medical care they should get. So. But do you do you as as a magician do you feel compelled to tell other magicians who are riding that line? Hey, you know, maybe you shouldn't do that, or do you? Go well, there? there is ongoing debate with. Regardless of you know face-to-face confrontations, I think more importantly, it's important to understand that there is there is ongoing and constant debate in the magic community about these issues uh, because there there are people on the skeptical side who support the skeptical movement uh, openly, like myself. Uh, there are people who are inclined that way, but not particularly vocal about it in their work because. They have a job to do as magicians, and they're doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people who, in the magic community, who are not only don't belong to the skeptical point of view artistically, but also worldview-wise, and who actually are believers in the paranormal. Mm-hmm. There are there are plenty of magicians right. who believe in the paranormal, and therefore strongly disagree uh, with my particular point of view. So there are disputes about that that are worldview-based, but there are also philosophical disputes 
especially in the in the in the realm of mentalism, which mm-hmm. is the branch of magic that specializes in apparent paranormal mind reading phenomena and so on. I don't think I have to remind the audience I'm not really floating a lady in half and putting her back together. Because mm-hmm. I think more people have an in, innate grasp of physics than they do of parapsychology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what it comes down right. to. Yeah. And goodness knows people should not be coming to my show to learn about science. Yeah. That's a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. To, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the pantheon of bad ideas, that's a pretty bad idea. <laughs> yeah. But nevertheless, I also acknowledge that people do, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's an area where I know mm-hmm. something more than they do. And I think it's my responsibility to speak the truth as I know it and try and Tell people that, look, I'm going to create the illusion of mind reading. I can't do it. Nobody else can do it. Maybe next time you think you see it, you should think about the fact you can't yeah. tell the difference if I wasn't telling you. Right. Well, what about the, uh, the Randy on Carson effect, as I guess I loosely refer to it as, when he did the psychic surgery performance and then NBC got the phone calls from hundreds of people saying, how do I get a hold of the psychic surgeon? Oh, Is there God. a certain danger there? There's always an underlying danger that you can't be responsible for how people in- interpret or use or misuse the information you give them. The only thing you can do is give them the information, right? Mm-hmm. I find it fascinating that a mentalist can do what they do. Yeah, it's it's more fascinating than if it was just I'm, I have magic because the person is actually reading body language, you know, inserting information into the person, pulling information out, like doing things that I can't no, detect. No, 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 no mentalists are reading body language. Is that not true? Tell you what card. You're okay. Of. Well, isn't there? There's no body language whatsoever involved with mentalism. You know, yeah, there's some, and there's certainly a lot of psychology involved in magic. But if <coughs> I stand and tell you that sometimes language, what, what, what's uh, the thing of uh, ver- the verdict? The movie, the verdict, where they talk about what's what's true and what's accurate, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So. It's accurate if I tell you I use a hell of a lot of psychology in my work. That is right. absolutely accurate. Yeah. In fact, psychology is more important to my work in some ways, in many ways in the end, than uh, all the, the mechanical sleight-of-hand practice in the world. Mm-hmm. That, is, that is true. Mm-hmm. But that's different than saying that reading your body language can tell me what card you're thinking of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. Okay. Well, I don't know. <laughs> right, but what this is the thing, and there's, yeah. here's where the argument occurs. You've exactly hit on, on, on the crosshairs yeah. of where the argument occurs. And, and there are many, many, it's become very popular in mentalism now to use those kinds of what magicians call presentations. It's a, it's a, it's a device to make the piece entertaining and interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I use it in my own work. I have pieces I put on stage where it appears to be about body language. It yeah. appears to be about reading people. But then I explicitly s- try and say... You know, I, I can't do any of these things, and, and neither can anybody else. You know, yeah. if you thought the stuff was real, you wouldn't be an audience. You'd be a congregation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Ah, <laughs> I like that. Very <laughs> that's good. A, oh, a good that, line. That's a good T-shirt. <laughs> as long as you put my name on the bottom of it, okay, for having written it, it's fine. That's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, that's just the reading the body language is just another diversion, distraction. It's You're, sort of a different – yes, yes. And, and it's another theme. You know, yeah. It's another thing that, 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 makes, that makes it interesting, uh, and that's fine to a point. But isn't it ironic that I said well, – when I was ta- trying to tell you what my idea was, I said, you know, I'm a practiced skeptic and critical thinker. And, <laughs> yes, then, and then I just launch right into right. – to the BS, yes, you know what I mean? Right. Well, you're not a magician, so you don't but know that. But that, there you right. go. Doesn't yeah. matter. You saw right, it. exactly. And that's because you saw a convincing demonstration by a talented magician who's putting ideas forward that don't seem 
completely far-fetched. If he yeah. said that, that, that his ability to float the lady was a paranormal power, you'd go, throw him off the stage, right? But you know more about physics innately than you do about the paranormal. Right. Can I ask what you think about neuro-linguistic programming? Bullshit. Oh, completely. Well, I haven't, I haven't seen, I haven't seen anything in the way of clinical evidence that says, that says anything in favor of NLP. What I, what I see about NLP, and I'm not going to say that I'm, I'm a definitive expert on the subject, but really what, everything that passes for evidence is a self-perpetuating industry. Right, mm-hmm. a self-referential, self-perpetuating, self-help industry that's yeah. created a faux mechanism uh, that's that you know offers courses and teaching levels and training levels, and then once they graduate, then they train other people, and everybody's making a buck, right. and it's all yeah. about you know supposedly you're looking up to the left if you're having one kind of thought, to the right if you're having another kind of thought, and boy, it smells like bullshit to me. Right, uh, you know. Um, uh, Ray Hyman, who's here at the TAM conference, uh, was on a, a, a select committee many years ago in the early days of NLP looking at it. I know they found nothing. Right. And uh, I, I don't see that subject being debated much in the actual scientific right. clinical community. I, don't, I right. don't see it there, right? And you'd think that with everything going on, in, in the, you know, I mean, I mean, is there any field today that isn't using an fMRI for something, right. you know, <laughs> right? right. Um, and, uh, but I haven't seen the fMRIs in NLP. Mm-hmm. Where's that? Yeah. Right. yeah. Right. So can you give us, the, give the audience a quick example of what, what people may think could be a, a real, uh, you know. Well, it, it's all the, again, this quasi-science of, of manipulating other people through using language and gestures and sensory input you know, to distract right, but let's, them and whatnot. But let's pause right there yeah. and say that the notion, I, I like to say, because there there's a big movement in magicians, especially amongst yeah. mentalists, who are big believers in NLP. Okay, yeah. and there's a lot of there's magicians and mentalists who have made a lot of money repackaging that stuff yeah. and selling it to magicians. And in counter to that, in my own lectures to magicians, I often say, um, you know, the notion that what I say may affect what people think is not an extraordinary claim. I think right. that's pretty much the way language works. Yeah. You say something, people hear it and think something about yeah, it. Right, you know, right. but, but, but NLP <laughs> seems to have these books this thick and tapes and videos and everything else that go, well, when I say red, I mean a color somewhere on the spectrum of, you know, what yeah. the, f- what, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I looked at the claims like that, you know, it, again, it smells fishy yeah, to me, yeah. and I haven't, I, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> as, as deep as I've dug, I haven't figured out where the actual studies and evidence is, and then they say, well, yeah, you know, it's kind of a pseudo-secret kind of... Yeah, oh, great. That's how science works. Yeah, Yeah. so that doesn't doesn't quite work. But we're not talking about, like, human behavior type things. Well, I'm going to give you an example from Darren Brown. Like, Darren Brown is a magician who... His cover is the NLP, right? But well, n- n- to some degree, n- n- he has partly, partly. Yeah, I he mean, has a lot of YouTube videos out where he says yeah. he claims to be using NLP to do certain claims tricks, but in fact, he's doing tricks. Right. But right. one thing I'll say about Darren, who is a colleague and, and actually a, a, one of the one of the best TV performers in the magic and mentalism realm in the world, yeah. uh, realm in the world. I, I don't think I'm violating a you know a confidence, and if I am, hey, <laughs> screw it. Um, I think <laughs> that with Darren. You know, if he says that there's a particular thing that is the mechanism behind what he's doing, that ain't it. Just right. cross mm-hmm. that one off the list. So in right. other words, right. like there are times when it really looks like he's using hypnosis. 
not a chance in hell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But there may be times when it uh, looks like something else. It might be hypnosis. Right. Wow. Right. Okay. Wow. That's so I think you can kind of make that assumption. That's one of the things that makes him a great performer, too. Yeah. 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 Um, but That's again, but he's been very influential, by no means the first, but very influential in this tide and time of using things like NLP, hypnosis, body language, inf- psychological influence, blah, blah, all those kinds of mechanisms yeah. right. uh, to make his work interesting and, and compelling as opposed to 30 years ago when the psychic claim was, you know, I yeah. knew the power of my mind. That, yeah. that worked 30 years ago. Today, people are not so quick to take that. Yeah. But they will accept, uh, they are more inclined to accept yeah. the notion, as you were, Jay, of, uh, okay, well, I can read body language. That doesn't seem like such a far-fetched idea. Right, exactly. But if you go back in the history of pseudosciences, right, like, you know, reading the bumps on the head, at the time, mm-hmm. considering the framework of our knowledge, some of those claims didn't. Didn't, that right. seems reasonable, That's right? You know, handwriting analysis. I, the first time I ever bumped up against handwriting analysis, I was I was quite young and uh, I was an adolescent, and it was a relative who was interested mm-hmm. in it. And uh, I went, "Wow, uh, looks, okay, yeah, that seems right. okay." I I put the capital letters way up above the line, and I'm, I got a little bit of ego, and I right, yeah. come down the end there. I must be in a bad mood or whatever. I mean, it seems yeah. you know, but com- plausible. But yeah. common sense is you know, as science, pretty much sucks, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Yes, right. I mean, that's why we invent the double blind test. That's Without right. that, what yeah. do you got? Right. You got common sense, and you're screwed. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I have a good anecdote about the difference between you know, magical savvy and. Being a scientist, uh-huh. uh, David Blaine, mm-hmm. oh, who is again another, I think I, I think is a, some of the stuff I saw, I was entertained by. I'll yeah, say that. okay. He's a good, good, good close-up magician, and he's actually first, tremendously influential yeah. in terms uh, the most influential television magician of our time yeah. because mm-hmm. David had the idea of turning the camera on the audience mm-hmm. as a substitute for credibility because the issue of magic. Yeah. Not to take you off your point, but the issue of magic always on television. Is what makes it credible, yeah, right? Yeah. At the distance, because the effects of magic are really not very robust when it comes right down to yeah. it. I can change a red ball to a green ball. Worship me. I mean, that, yeah. nobody cares, but they care because you're up close and it's real. Once you put it on television, you have that distance, right? So David had the idea of turning, the, of, of bringing it out in the street, off the stage, taking yeah. it out off the stage, bringing it out in the street with a camera crew, pointing the camera at the screaming girls on the street, yeah. and you go, "Wow, it must be really yeah, happening." That's interesting. Right, right. And like, the result is, yeah. the result is. Chris Angel, Darren Brown in England, yep. uh, Cyril Takayama in Japan. All of it. Uh, all these guys. Are you, that's how we look. That's how we do magic on TV today. Yeah. So for this, David yeah. deserves credit. My he, anecdote, though, is this, before I get totally off this point, <laughs> is that uh, he can, he does skirt that gray area of trying mm. to you know, maybe claim he's got some powers and yeah, a little, not much. And, and he, as part of his attempt to do that, he actually got involved with some neurosurgeons at Yale, and I work. I'm a neurologist at okay. Yale, right? So I, this Ooh. is where my insight now comes from on this and he totally snookered them completely snookered these neurosurgeons and it was and it was funny for me to to for them to tell me about what was going on I'm like, oh christ he, this guy and, totally snookered you yeah, give me one example well eeg stuff and other things and, and but the one thing that was funny was uh actually this other guy who's a neurologist in, in my department was um saying that you know they the card trick where he will he says tell me when to stop and he flips his fingers across a deck of cards then he pulls out the, the top half of the deck and says there are 23 cards in this uh-huh. stack. Right. And the neurologist is telling me that this performance that he did, uh, this is while he's in a, in a, a bed at Yale New Haven Hospital okay. with EEGs on his head, right? Okay. David Blaine. And he says, did the he, fact that he was doing a card trick yeah, at all well, suggest to them but, that but, maybe... So they, they knew he was a magician, but they thought he was using... 
extreme physical talent yeah. rather than trickery. So yeah. And the, what the neurologist said to me was, his fingers are so sensitive, he can feel that there are 23 cards in there. I'm like, dude. It's a trick deck of cards. I know how to do that trick. I mean, you have to make one okay. card shorter than yeah, the or rest longer, or whatever. It's <laughs> okay. That's probably not the method. Well, he admit used. that that's one way to do it. But I'm yes, sure yes. it's not his super sensitive feeling in his fingers. I'm right? reasonably sure of that. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a damn shame. And that's not that's the same thing. It happens. It happened in spiritualism in the mid 19th yep. century with with uh, prominent scientists, yep. you know, yes. William Crookes and the like. Right. Right. Um, and it happened in the in the 1970s with Geller and so forth. Uh, and again, I come back to that issue. This has been the message of magicians all along. This has been, for, for as long as parapsychology has been around as an alleged science, it's a, it's a science without one re- replicable paradigmatic experiment. Right. A hundred and some odd years, and 150 years later. So yep. we use the word science overly generously. But right. okay, in 150 right. years of parapsychology as an alleged science, you know, Harry Houdini was there. James Randi is here saying... You can have all the experts in the world. You need a magician just in case somebody might be fooling you. Yeah, right. Yep, right. Because you're not going to know. Well, thank you, Jamie. A pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. Really Thanks. a delight to be here. Look forward to the next time. Thank you. Great. Thank you. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to sniff out the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Yes. 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 Still still smarting from your uh, whomping last week? I I don't even remember it. Here we go. Item number one. A new study shows that women tend to be more tentative and uncertain in their social interactions than men. Item number two. A recent study finds that when lost, people really do walk in circles. And item number three, recent evidence shows that obese people have 8% less brain tissue than those of normal weight. Evan, go first. Women tend to be more tentative and uncertain in their social interactions than men. You know, kind of on the surface, I think you think that that might be the case. But, you know, these new studies that always come out often show the opposite. So I'll say that one's... I don't know what that one is. I'll move on. And then the recent study finds when lost, people do walk in circles. Now, I know there's there, some. it does have something to do. Like if you are walking and you are lost, I think it's done if you're right-handed or left-handed, you have a stronger push-off with one leg or the other. And tend to, you know, if you walk far enough, you'll start to like arc if you don't exactly you know have a direction that you're, or a something that you're paying attention to to keep you on a straight line, you will start to curve in a certain way. So I think that one's correct. And then more evidence, more recent evidence, showing obese people have 8% less brain tissue than those of normal weight. What the heck is the correlation there between obese people and less brain tissue? I'll have to take a stab at either the women tending to be more tentative I'll say that that one is fiction, that women tend to be more tentative and uncertain in their social interactions than men. Okay, Jay. Okay. A new study shows that women tend to be more tentative and uncertain in their social interactions than men. Right off the cuff, I would disagree with that. Just from my my own experience, I I don't really see that. A recent study finds that when lost, people really do walk in circles... That does make a lot of sense, I, especially I immediately think if they're walking, well, then they're in a city situation, and, and if they're lost, 
they're looking for something. So I could, I could potentially see them walking in circles around an area to find what they're looking for. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and a recent evidence shows that obese people have 8% less brain tissue than those of normal weight. 8% seems like a lot. I mean, I would imagine that that loss of brain tissue is the result of shrinkage of the brain. Maybe there's a correlation between overweight people and, and um, you know, lack of exercise, you know, poor diet. So that's actually saying that fat people are dumb. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in one ex- very extreme way of putting it. I mean, I don't know about that. Let's see. I'm just, I know that the first one is fiction just from my personal experience. I'll just go with that. Okay, Rebecca. <laughs> okay, well, I don't think that less brain tissue means that you're dumb, but <laughs> I can see how that that's believable. If over um, a lifetime someone was obese, um, obesity can cause a lot of health issues. So it could, you know, maybe as you age, reduce your brain tissue and lead to early Alzheimer's, things like that. That certainly does make sense. And yes, people do walk in circles. I'm sure of it um, because I'm not really sure, but I've done it before. <laughs> you yourself times. have walked in circles? I've everything. walked in circles. I've walked in circles. So um, <laughs> no, I, uh, but that's because uh, one of my legs is shorter than the other. So, um, uh-huh. Interesting. Uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> that's, that's actually uh, pretty probably common. Probably is. Yeah. My, I'm, my, one of my legs is a little bit shorter than the other. So I'm, I'm going to agree with the group and say that women do not tend to be more tentative and uncertain in social interactions than men. In fact, um, I think women tend to be more outgoing while men tend to be more of the loner types. Are you sure? I am positive. Uh, okay. Bob? Positive. Go with the easy one, the uh, walking in circles yeah, I've kind of known some for years. I thought that uh, if you don't have a landmark, that's the key. You don't have a landmark, and it's yeah. just you walking like in a whiteout snowstorm. You will, you will walk in circles, and I think it's due to asymmetries in the gait and leg length. Hey, and things settle like down, that. Bob. Um, so uh, <laughs> let me just oh, open shit. the gate. What? You bastard. <laughs> um, the other two are, are tougher. I'm going back and forth, back and forth. Um, the 8% less brain tissue. It, my initial reaction was that you took a regular news item and, and twisted it somehow, Steve, into this. <laughs> um, but there, there could be some reasons I could see how obesity could affect um, brain size. So that one kind of makes sense. The first one, and even the first one, I don't have a good read on because it depends. But I think – I think I'll go with the crowd on this one and um, and and say that the uh, uncertain interactions is uh, is fiction. Okay, so you all seem most certain about number two. A recent study finds that when lost, people really do walk in circles. And regarding that one, you are all wrong. Although it is science. <laughs> <laughs> what? But you. <laughs> it is true that we walk in circles, although. Uh, not because one leg's shorter than the other, and not because you push off more with one leg, not because one leg is stronger than the other. It has nothing to do with any intrinsic physical difference in the person himself, in terms of you know favoring one side or the other. Uh, what these researchers did was they had people walk, try to walk a straight line while blindfolded, or they actually had them walking in, say, a desert environment or a forest, where basically it's a monotonous environment where there are no distant landmarks that you can focus on. 
If the sun or the moon were up, that was enough to help them keep in a roughly straight line. But without the sun or the moon as a guide, again, or any distant landmark, they tended to walk in circles. Some very, very short circles, like within 20 meters, like really short. But that's what the blindfold, if you were blindfolded, they would, and trying to walk in straight line, some people would walk in pretty short circles. However, uh, the same individuals would walk in pretty much would make a, at random a left or a right-handed circle, right? So there was no – like an individual person wouldn't always walk to the left or always walk to the right. Sometimes they would circle to the left. Sometimes they would circle to the right. So that – Sometimes they do the hokey pokey. And, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that tends to rule out any intrinsic favoring of one side or the other. And I think it just has to do with the fact that it's – you're trying to navigate in your head and try to hold a straight line, and you know you're making probably a drunken walk, and yeah. it's you know at random it's going to you know depending on what cues you're listening to or if there's anything biasing your your sense of direction at that particular moment it'll be you'll be more in one direction than the other. When you th- that always made sense to me because when you think about it, not walking in circles means you're walking exactly yeah. average either in a perfectly straight line or your deviations to one side or the other are exactly averaging out. Well, what, you can't me- be meandering around and kind of not really... Yeah, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that like it could... To make a circle that's small enough to be noticed by researchers in the time you know it takes to do the study, I think that is a bit surprising. You know? Actually, I can't like, I a big wavy think- line. Well, yeah, but but then you're if it's you're still then saying that it's averaging out in or, in order for you never to cross back across your trail again. I'm not saying you're making a perfect circle. We're just saying when you make us what, what they mean by make walk in a circle is that you cross back th- across your your path. Again. I don't know, Steve. Those parameters are pretty right, but- wide open because you get the sure eventually, right? But I don't know. I don't. I don't really. Yeah, I mean, that. I feel like I would. I would have. Fe- I was surprised by the result because I would have thought that it would have taken longer, a much greater distance before you would eventually cross back over. Let's go on to number three. Recent evidence shows that obese people have 8% less brain tissue than those of normal weight, and that one, you guys all thought that one was science, and that one is Uh science. Yeah, we all won. We redeemed ourselves. Suck it. And this was based upon (laughs) uh, a survey of, of older adults looking at their, their brain volumes, and they did find a correlation between BMI, they used you know the the body mass index, uh, those in the obese range, and reduce uh, brain volume. So what caused it? In the frontal and temporal lobe. So it wasn't all over the brain. It was actually more in the frontal and temporal lobe. Oh, that's so. A- the, the, this was really just a a uh, anatomical study, not really looking at the cause. So they didn't comment on that specifically, but. Being obese is, is our risk factor is a ri- independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension, and those things all can plausibly affect the health of the brain. So, what what I think needs to be answered now is: is obesity an independent risk factor for degenerative changes in the brain, or is it just co- uh, correlating with? a lot of other negative health outcomes that are caused by the obesity, right? What all this means is a new study shows that women tend to be more tentative and uncertain in their social interactions than men is completely false. A lie and a falsehood. There is a stereotype that men tend to be more direct while women tend to be more tentative. Have you met Rebecca? Rebecca would then, of course, be the exception. However, what the uh, sociological researchers did 
is they examined men and women, and they had them um, communicate through email to a person that they were told was a another male or they were told was a female. Ah. And about a topic that was either guy-centric, you know, uh, female-centric, or gender-neutral. So, for example, they could have told a guy to offer some opinion about buying makeup to a girl. So a situation in which he was likely to assume that the person he was talking to had much more comfort and knowledge about the topic than he did, that the guy would tend to be more tentative in their statements. And the operational definition they used was, did you use any weasel words? Did you use any qualifications like maybe or I don't know or... Or did you did you qualify with a question at the end? Like, do you, is that right? What do you think? Uh, or did you just make a flat statement of what you think? So guys tended to be more tentative when talking about topics that were more female-centric to women and then somewhat to about female-centric topics to men. Same thing with, with women. Women tend to be more tentative talking about, like, cars or whatever to, to guys, somewhat to other women, and then... Talking about, but girls talking about girl topics or guys talking about guy topics, they were not tentative at all. Or if they were talking about gender neutral topics, they were not tentative either. So the the bottom line of all this is that the the degree of tentativeness seemed to, to do with the comfort with the topic and who you're talking with. Do you think that you're talking to a peer or somebody who's likely to be to know more about what you're talking about than you do? rather than the sex of the person talking. So there didn't seem there was no difference between men and women in terms of their tentativeness. Well, congratulations hey, everyone. You and your short leg. Well done. <laughs> yeah. We're going to call you Meat Leg. <laughs> meat Leg. Meatle G. Meatle G. That's still funny. Oh god. I love it. So Evan, get oh, us up listens. to date on who's that noisy. Yeah, yeah, let's take a listen at last week's who's that noisy. So, Evan, what was that? That was uh, a sonic boom. Really? That boom, yes, it was. How, I got that off the NASA website. But far away. Off the NASA site yeah. or the NASA site? No, no, NASA. NASA. Okay. From NASA's website, yeah. that was. Uh, and I kind of liked it, you know, that particular one with the birds tweeting in the background. So, you know, you have this. You're definitely on the ground, you know, amongst the, the animals yeah. and stuff. And way, way up in the wherever sphere. You know, there's this jet going mock whatever to bust the sound bearing. Boom, 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 boom. You know, that's so cool. Evan, oh. a lot of people on the <laughs> Don't message. Don't get me started. Yeah, slow down, cowboy. A lot of people on the message board said they thought it was a ramjet. Yeah, but you know, there was a, one person who guessed breaking the sound barrier first and correctly. Um, although they thought it was a supersonic car breaking the sound barrier, mm-hmm. but I'm going to give it to them because they were the first one to mention breaking the sound barrier. So technically, they're correct. And that was M. Willie. Willie. <laughs> Do you know what was breaking the sound barrier, though, to produce that sound? It was, yeah, it was a uh, it was a jet. A uh, I don't recall the exact. Okay, but not make, not a ramjet or scramjet or anything particular. Just a regular old jet. <laughs> well, Evan, what do you got for us this week? All right. So this week we've got another, not a voice, but a noise. You have to kind of decipher. Now, listen closely, because it's you know it's going to be. Hard to, I think, determine this one. We'll see if anyone gets it. Here we go. (laughs) 
That is definitely somebody who forgot to turn their phone off in their purse. (laughs) (laughs) Or someone who sat on their BlackBerry and called someone and didn't realize it, you know. I wouldn't even know where to start with that one. Good job, Good luck, everybody. And, uh, yeah, folks, don't forget, send in your uh, recordings of Who's That Noisy so we can uh, get more of them integrated into the show. It's a lot of fun. Jay, what's a quote for this week? Steve, I have a quote. This quote was sent in by a listener named Mark Hayden. Hayden! And uh, it's from none other than Galileo. Appropriate. In questions of science, the authority of a thousand is not worth the humble reasoning of a single individual. Galileo Galilei! That is a very appropriate quote for Galileo. Definitely. Well, thanks for joining me again this week, everyone. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. Problem.